You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. I was at Lowe's yesterday, and I meant to be there for an hour because I got there at eight, and an hour turned into two and a half hours. So, and I just completely spaced. So, sorry about that. Lowe's and Home Depot are time warps. Yes, I remember when we were remodeling my house when I was a kid, my dad would go there for just something real quick. And I realized that there is no way to go to Home Depot without it taking an hour. I, I've gotten I've gotten pretty good at it. Although uh, Lowe's has a really good app. And you punch in what you want in the app and it'll tell you exactly what aisle it's on. So um, I've actually gotten pretty good at it. I have a list. And uh, especially for Home Depot now, but Lowe's, because I don't go to Lowe's as often, so they, they suck me in with their advertising and I, I get I'm a little bit more helpless there. But Home Depot, I've been there so much because it's closer that I'm pretty good about getting in there and getting out. But uh, I got I got sucked into the tool section yesterday and I was like, ooh, ah, yeah, it was it was it was dangerous. Episode 29. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we clean up the highway of cultural conversation. It's a messy job, but someone has to do it. And Thomas and I are up for the task. And today I wanted to start off the show, Thomas, by discussing our relationship with China which I'm afraid has is, is, is taking a rather nasty turn. Um, I'll tell you, I've always, people always say, hey, we're going into war with China, we're going into war with China. And uh, my, my response historically has always been, yeah, that's like Walmart going to war with its customers. Uh, and I didn't see in our previous relationship that really being that big of a deal because China, for all its uh, communist uh, uh, flag waving, really is has become a capitalist country, albeit a centrally managed capitalist country, but it's it's getting more and more free every day uh, capitalist-wise. And um, so they, they have started our, adhering to the almighty power of the dollar, or in this case, the yuan. But, uh, and so their interest in, you know, they are the biggest buyer of uh, American debt, American dollar in the world. I think that's still the still the truth. So, you know, their economic interests were very, very closely tied with ours because nobody, no other country in this world can match the United States in terms of buying power, sheer buying power. And so when you have a, 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 that good of a customer, you want to keep good relations with that customer. That said, our president, with his tariffs and his trade wars and uh, China's growing power, especially their growing sea power, they're they're they have a sort of manifest destiny of their own as it regards the South China Sea, and they're slowly moving further and further out from territory that they they feel is theirs. And so, I will give you an example. I saw an article in the Business Insider. Uh, it says that China sends six warnings to a U.S. Navy plane, uh, telling them to leave immediately and keep out. The uh, Navy aircraft stayed the course, insisting that it was within its legal rights in international waters. And uh, eventually nothing happened. But the thing is, is that China is radioing and warning uh, entering ships, uh, the United States Navy even, saying, hey, this is our water keep out. Water that has traditionally been known as international waters. And China is saying, basically, hey, we're, we're claiming this is ours. And they're, they're kind of like a toddler feeling, feeling their boundaries. Um, and it, it can get dangerous with these territorial disputes, especially if our economic ties weaken. So if we have a huge 
trade war, which we kind of already have started. And the international trade reorganizes to the effect that China isn't as dependent on our economy. They might, and of course, this is going to be dependent on who each nation's political leaders are at the time. They might come to the realization that, hey, you know what? A war or whether it's a cold war or a hot war or a lukewarm war, war is uh, now on the table now that we don't stand as much to lose. So I've actually kind of started to see a dangerous relationship form, and I'm a little bit worried about it. What do you think, Thomas? So there's an old saying that is, if you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank. Because suddenly the bank needs you to succeed so that the uh, bank can succeed. And I feel that this is true with our relationship with China. They need us to succeed. And um, I do think it is irritating to them that we are more powerful than they are in their own backyard. So normally a country as powerful as China would be able to exert, you know, a lot of influence outside of China uh, militarily. And if you look at the East China Sea, it's surrounded by, on the north, North Korea, which is an American ally. We have lots of military bases there. And then we have Japan, which is an American ally. We have lots of military bases there. And then uh, on the east, and then on the south, there's Taiwan, which is an American ally, kind of, sort of. So we have lots of military assets in the East China Sea. I, I feel like we always have an aircraft carrier parked off the coast of Taiwan to keep China from invading Taiwan, which really irritates China. In fact, they have this beautifully passive-aggressive way of getting back at America for this. They have flooded the market of globes. So all globes in the world are made in China, uh, and they make them so cheaply that no one else really can afford to make globes. In Taiwan, if you look at an old-fashioned globe, is always the same color as China. <laughs> so they're like, we may not be able to make Taiwan actually a part of China, <clears throat> but we'll make it at least the same color on the globe. And for, for those of you who don't know the history of Taiwan, the business people of China, when the communists were taking over, all packed up and took their money to Taiwan. And they kind of fled with their capital to Taiwan. And uh, a lot of the wealth of China has been sitting in Taiwan ever since, because the aristocracy fled there for their lives. Because when you're going around killing people, you scare them away. Um, So, yeah, so it's it's weird. I I can understand if this was reversed, and let's say the Gulf of Mexico was completely controlled by a foreign power that had a massive fleet just constantly hanging out in the Gulf of Mexico and just just in international waters right off the coast of Texas, we'd find that very disconcerting as well. Because remember, international waters is almost all of the waters. Your national lands only extend like 10 or 20 miles off your coast. Uh, so, so you can get really close to someone's uh, coast and, quote, still be an international waters, um, especially with the definition of international waters they're using, because there's international waters, and then there's an exclusive economic zone, uh, which extends into international waters. There's an overlap, if I'm remembering correctly. So the exclusive economic zone is that um, anyone can sail through here. It's international waters in the sense of like taking your ship across the ocean. But we have an exclusive right to economically exploit these waters if there's oil or fish or something like that. 
Uh, so uh, this China, you know, basically sent six angry messages to an airplane and then didn't do anything in the sent in the realm of escalations. This is nothing compared to what we used to have on a daily basis with Russia. Um, Russia, we would have airplanes that would shoot at each other and shoot each other down. You know, they shot down a spy plane uh, that, you know, crashed in Russia and we had to exchange the um, some prisoner that we had of the Russians for the pilot to get him back. And, uh, you know, so th- th- I'm not too concerned about this escalation. I do understand China's desire to be able to exert more influence in their own South China Sea. But, uh, and the East China Sea, but it's it's just going to be really tough for them to get there. And, uh, you know, if I were them, I'd be frustrated too. <laughs> but I think they're better off pushing west. What they're doing with this um, one loop policy where they're building like a super highway all the way to Israel um, and connecting all of these countries with infrastructure and building trains and getting, you know, all of kind of the middle part of Asia dependent on them economically. I feel like that's their winning play. Because uh, we don't have a good counter for that, and it doesn't it doesn't require them to become a naval power, which is really hard. We've talked about this on the show before. You know, building up a navy is not just about building boats; it's also about training naval officers and naval crew and sailors. And it takes generations to really get good at that. And uh, the countries that are good at navies tend to stay good at navies. Athens was good at having a navy for centuries. England has been good at having a navy for millennia. <laughs> and the United States, you know, we finally got into the navy business. We've actually always been pretty good at navy stuff, even when we hardly had a navy, uh, because we were a maritime or we were founded by a maritime country. So we got to inherit a lot of um, British naval precedent. So the United States Marine Corps is modeled after the British Marine Corps. And I hear, and Dustin, you can tell me if this is true, U.S. Marines get along pretty well with uh, British uh, Marines because the esprit de corps is very similar and the culture is very similar. Is that is that true? It is true. As a matter of fact, uh, and I think it's still the case, um, at our officer candidate school uh, in Quantico, Virginia, there is a... Uh, an, 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 an exchange officer uh, with the from the Royal Commandos, which is their uh, which is their Marine their Marine Force, um, that is always on staff there, and he's kind of the one of the PT guys, one of the physical physical fitness guys, and uh, his rank is a color sergeant. And uh, I I just remember me, when I went to officer candidate school, uh, just being flabbergasted a by this man's accent, who I couldn't understand, even though he was supposedly speaking English. And uh, B, by the fact that I could not identify his rank and I was stunned into silence and I got subsequently yelled at for 10 minutes uh, and I was very confused. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And then he uh, then, then then he invited me down to the physical fitness field for some press ups, which uh, apparently meant that we were going down to the PT field for push ups. But I had no clue what he was talking about. But uh, I, yes, we do generally have a very good relationship uh, with the Marine Corps. Their Marine Corps. Uh, is treated much more like a special forces unit, whereas our Marine Corps is uh, treated more as a very uh, niche-focused uh, uh, conventional fighting force. We we fight in the littorals, which is basically anything uh, from the coast 15 miles in, and uh, we operate from ships, and we're sea-based, et cetera, et cetera. 
but we do have special forces within the Marine Corps, and our Marine Corps is much, much larger than the Royal Navy, Royal Navy Marine Corps. So we are very similar, but we also have uh, a lot of differences in the way we fight. Right. And your your origins were more similar. Back when the Marines' primary job was boarding ships and repelling borders, which is a kind of a crazy thought. More importantly, Thomas, more importantly, the Marines' jobs, that was a Marines' job when the ship was actually uh, under attack, which didn't happen that often. Uh, the, the main job of a Marine, Royal, or American was to serve as a guard force for the officers, the naval officers of the ship against their own crew. <laughs> so you had this separate force of individuals whose main job, and they were the only ones allowed to carry firearms uh, and for, for the purpose of obviously, you know, having that power of, of having firearms. And their main job was to protect the officers from the crew. So that's <laughs> that, that was a bulk of the Marines' work, believe it or not. Fascinating. That was back when people were pressed into service, which was like being drafted. It's a kind of a cross between being drafted and being uh, kidnapped, where some you'd be at a pub and someone would whack you on the back of the head and you'd wake up on a boat, sometimes for a, a country that you weren't even a part of. Um, but we're getting a, a little bit off off track here. <laughs> but all of that to say, yeah, but but it, this is a good point, though. The story that Dustin is sharing about the, kind of the origin and the culture of the Marines goes back to a time when boats were made out of wood and sailors were pressed into service. And we've had a continuous Navy, you know, the, to train the next generation of Navy going back all of that, you know, hundreds of years. And it's, China doesn't have that. They were very insular for a long time. They actually at one time in history had the largest Navy and the compass and gunpowder. And they just decided that they didn't want to conquer the world and they destroyed their Navy, <laughs> which is one of the fascinating kind of what ifs of history. What would have happened if they'd have not destroyed their own Navy and actually tried to conquer the world back when they had such a clear technological advantage? But I think it's important to understand Chinese culture. And we uh, intellectually are more descended from the Romans than we are from any of the other great empires. And the Romans had this manifest destiny of conquering the world and sharing their greatness with the world. And they're like, we are so much better than our neighbors. It is our obligation to conquer them, bring our laws and our justice and our learning to these barbarian tribes and enlighten them and exploit them. Uh, so it wasn't uh, benevolent necessarily, but that that's kind of the model, the Western model. Uh, it was the model the British were using, right? We're going to conquer the world and create colonies and exploit them and bring them our better legal system. Um, China, on the other hand, when it had a clear technological and economic advantage over all of its neighbors, did it go out and conquer them and exploit them? Or did it spend just as much money to build a wall to keep them out? <laughs> The answer is it spent just as much money to build like the most epic wall of all walls ever, the Great Wall of China, to keep their neighbors out because they didn't want to conquer their neighbors. They didn't want to bother with their neighbors. They wanted them to stay away because they were lesser. They weren't as great as the great Chinese. They are the Middle Kingdom. Why should they bother even interacting with them? And China... Keep in mind that their neighbors were the Mongolians, so, you know... There's yeah, some history so there. fair. They had some of their neighbors were Mongolians, and they had other neighbors too. And and they did when the Mongolians did conquer China uh, under Mongolian rule. China was a little aggressive, 
But it wasn't really because the Chinese were aggressive. It was because the Mongolians were aggressive. And as the Mongolians got Chinified uh, and became more Chinese with each subsequent generation, they got less and less uh, aggressive, outwardly aggressive. And so they don't, you know, we have 5,000 years of Chinese history and we just don't have very much precedent of China going on a world conquering spree. It's just not in their nature. Japan, yes. <laughs> Japan, uh, given the chance, very much may want to, you know, go out and conquer the world. But China just, they haven't wanted to. And it's its fascinating. In fact, just staying together as a country is the big challenge of China because um, there's no one China. There's all these different provinces and the different provinces have their own languages and they're a world unto themselves. And in terms of population, they really are a world unto themselves. They're like, why would we want to conquer the rest of the world? Everyone's all spread out. We have almost all the population that we'd ever want right here in these tiny little areas. So I don't think... And I may disagree with you here a little bit, Dustin, but I, I don't see China as a military threat in the near term or in the long term. I don't see them having the desire and I don't see them having the ability. Economically, absolutely, I see them as being a threat. Each generation, they're going to be wealthier and better educated. And there's so many of them. They have more honor students than we have students. Economically, they're absolutely going to be a threat. But I don't see I don't see a shooting match uh, going anywhere with China. And uh, for the for the longest time, Thomas, I was on the same page as you. And of course, you know, just like watching a, a stock market chart, it's sometimes difficult to see the forest for the trees. However, you know, you, you look at trends and this is a very short term trend and it, it might, as far as the trade war is concerned, it might just be because of the political leaders in place at the current moment. Uh, we could have a new president in a couple of years and or, or we definitely will have a new president in at least uh, six years. And it could completely reverse and change, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as China's territorial expansion, this is not something that has been new to the Marine Corps or the United States military writ large. The Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan wound down, made a ha- have made a, uh, a very conscious effort to refocus on the Pacific. And it is entirely... For this reason, whether it's state or not, it, it just for political reasons, it's entirely because of China. And you're right; it is very difficult to build a navy, and it's very expensive to build a navy. But what has gotten a lot cheaper are missiles that can blow up a navy ship, and we haven't had that test in America yet. We have not had a, um, a an all-out war where you have the technology of today, where you could potentially have one or two uh, highly intelligent weapons that can end an aircraft carrier, and you want to talk about scary, that is scary. Uh, Because we put as much money into ship's defense as we do into offensive weapons, because when you put billions of dollars of resources and manpower and humanity on this aircraft carrier, you need to keep it alive. And if you can kill it in a split second with a missile, now all of a sudden your naval power doesn't become as important. So that scares me. So... Uh, I, I'm not convinced that a war is impossible, and, and I think a war with China would be extremely ugly. As far as the Navy is concerned, China's really good at thinking outside the box. Um, in this case, they're they're not even really trying to build a navy. They they kind of are, but not really. I think they understand they can't match our navy, and I think they understand what an expense an aircraft carrier is and how vulnerable. What they're doing, Thomas, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, what they're doing is they're building islands. They're building islands 
with sand out in the middle of the South Pacific. They have giant runways on them, and they all they are, are all they are is stationary aircraft carriers. Um, and it's it's pretty interesting tactic. If you can't afford a navy, which requires you know it depreciates, so it requires constant upkeep. You constantly have to build new ships. Build an island. You know, I, I'm not entirely sure. I'd like to see, you know, the first tsunami or um, uh, or major typhoon roll over one of these islands to see how, how steady these islands are, but uh, to see how well engineered they are. But it's an interesting it's an interesting thought. If they can survive a typhoon, these islands might be a better idea than an aircraft carrier if your primary means is self-defense around your uh, home country. Yes, they can't project their power into the sea like we can, with our marine expeditionary forces and our uh, aircraft carrier groups, etc. But uh, if all you're worried about is home defense, this might be a better way to go. And you can continue expanding out and expanding out and expanding out uh, to give your to give your your defense uh, depth. And uh, the best defense has layers and it has depth. So, um, and as, as far as wars go, you know, economic wars, uh, absolute war, I'm not as convinced. I, I understand what you were saying culturally about China being uh, culturally, culturally insular and isolationist uh, at its heart over the long term. However, I do see China starting to change that dynamic. And China wasn't always that way. There have been episodes in China when they built their uh, great navy back in, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, I want to say it was around 1000 AD. When they built their great navy, um, you know, they, they did go out and try to exert some influence. And so how long does it take a culture to change its outlook? How long did it take Japan to change its outlook? Because Japan was historic, historically isolationist. Japan was historically uh, insular. And all of a sudden... As Japan brought itself into the industrial age at the turn of the 20th century, 19th to 20th century, they took a look around. They realized they were getting left behind. And they turned from what was an isolationist, insular country into an expansionist force. And that was one of the primary drivers of World War II. And history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Famous quote by uh, Mark Twain. And I do see a possibility that China could be headed down that same road. And if you want to talk about a scary war, if you thought World War II was scary, the wars that we have these days, if it goes all out, is going to be absolutely devastating. And uh, so, yeah, so it, so it does worry me. I'm not saying it, it's an absolute because there are no absolutes until it's already happened. But uh, it is a trend that I will be keeping an eye on, uh, especially in light of the trade wars. Because like I said, if the economy of if the global economy does shift in such a way that China doesn't rely on the United States as, more, as much anymore on its own economy, and I think it's that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to get away from their dependence on us. They're trying to uh, they're they're trying to expand into other areas so that they're not as dependent on us. All of a sudden, the relationship that we had no longer becomes the barrier for warfare. And if China sees sees in its best interest, or war with us to uh, advance itself, um, then I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility in that case. So while I definitely don't think it's an absolute, it is something that I will be keeping an eye on. I love the idea that China is building a Great Wall of China in islands. <laughs> Where it's, you know, it's, if it's a you know $3 billion to build an aircraft carrier, they're like, well, gosh, for $3 billion, we could 
build an island where no island existed. Uh, and that is just such a quintessentially Chinese approach of, you know, having these military bases and these forts and it, it doesn't project power. Uh, I do see them at some point wanting to get Taiwan back. Like if, if we were to get into a, a shooting war with China, I feel like their very clear objection or objective would be the retaking of Taiwan. Um, I, I don't see it, a way for them to project power into the United States. Um, so just taking Taiwan, which is right off their coast. Uh, so if you can picture a map of China, Taiwan is this island that's just off the coast of China, kind of like um, England is just off the coast of Europe. Uh, you know, it's very close. There's a channel in between. Um, so let's say they take Taiwan, then they have to somehow cross the largest ocean in the world that happens to be filled with United States military bases already. So first they have to deal with Guam, which we have fortified significantly over the last 80 years. And then they have to fortify, uh, then they have to take Hawaii, which, you know, you can hit Hawaii, but taking Hawaii is tricky. Uh, and again, we have fortified Hawaii. So you have two very difficult wars and you're still only halfway to the United States, <laughs> um, or at least to the United States mainland. No, no offense to any of our Hawaiian or Guam listeners. Uh, y'all are Americans uh, too. Um, hey, and thank you for listening. If you are in Guam, Hawaii, and wow. Yeah. Uh, also, if, if you're in Guam, I just would like to say I'm sorry that you can't vote for president. I think that's stupid. The end. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, I, uh, when I was a teenager, I uh, was writing a book with a friend of mine, and we really wanted the United States to go to war with China because we would th we thought that would be the most interesting story to tell. And we gave up on the book because we couldn't figure out a way to get Chinese troops to America. <laughs> um, my friend thought the best way was to fight a land battle um, over the top of the globe and like go through Alaska and Canada and into the United States. And I was like, there is no way like every mountain, every hill, the terrain, it's too cold. They would go by sea. And he's like, no, we would just nuke their fleet. You know, it'd be the perfect use of tactical nuclear weapons with no civilian fallout. And I was like, had not even thought about that. It's <laughs> like, wow, you know, an aircraft carrier trumps everything but a nuclear weapon. And even if we didn't nuke their fleet, crossing that amount of ocean with missiles to conventional missiles raining down all along the way is prohibitively difficult. So, um, yes, maybe they want to take Taiwan and get the Koreas and Japan as, you know, protectorates again. Uh, but I just don't see them projecting power outside of their own kind of neighborhood of the planet. Um, it, it, it's just too hard. As much as it would make for good fiction, we couldn't find a way even in our fictional world to make it actually happen. <laughs> so we gave up on it. Um, and that book never got finished. Uh, so, and, and I was able to sleep easily at night knowing that there's no way the, China, the red Chinese are going to knock on my door and try to turn me into a communist. So where it gets scary, Thomas, is not so much that I'm, I'm worried about invasion because you, you hit the nail on the head there. Invading the United States of America really has been our saving grace uh, for the past, you know, history of our nation. Um, you know, aside from a potential invasion of Mexico, not likely, or an invasion by Canada, <laughs> highly unlikely. Uh, we are, we, we are, it's pretty stinking tough to get over here because the North America is kind of an island unto itself. So it's not really a, an invasion that anybody in this nation should be worried about. 
Um, I think the greatest effect that they could have on our mainland is via the economy. Um, however, you know, going back once again to the model that Japan had in World War II, which is what I really see as a more feasible option, China becomes militant. Let's see, it was the best way to say this. They become militantly violent in protecting their quote-unquote sphere of influence. So there's no doubt that China sees North and South Korea as within its sphere of influence. There's no doubt that China sees Japan within its sphere of influence. There's no doubt that, uh, and don't think for a second that Chinese memory hasn't uh, lasted seven years and would love to get back to Japan uh, for World War II. They would love to, still, to this day. And, um, you know, Taiwan, obviously, it, you know, they, 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 they think that Taiwan is China. And uh, I think it's just a matter of, of when, not if, uh, Taiwan does rejoin mainland China, just like Hong Kong, just because China sees that as a cultural right of theirs, but they also see the economic benefits because Taiwan is a huge piggy bank for them. Uh, but then let's let's discuss beyond that. You know, let's talk about Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, the Philippines, which is you know a very huge historical ally. So now all of a sudden you're talking about a sphere of influence that gets larger and larger and larger, and starts overlapping with people with countries that are our allies, like the Philippines, where we still have military interests, where we still have military bases, like Okinawa, Japan. Um, and so whether it's, it's not the invasion you have to be worried about. Now, all of a sudden, we're start talking about spheres of influence, just like in World War II, and people becoming, people becoming possessive of those. And all it takes is the uh, right, or I guess in this case, a better way to say it would be the wrong leader and the wrong national conscience uh, within a country, be it uh, China, be it the United States, what have you, um, that decides that today is the day to recognize that China is the leader in our severe influence and we are going to use our military might that we have built up in our savings bank over the past hundreds of years and we are today going to declare a war to protect our sphere of influence. Now, uh, Japan was uh, tipped over the edge into war with the United States into attacking us largely because of the lead up to World War II. Part of that was uh, Japan attacking China and the United States retaliating against Japan economically by cutting off their oil, uh, which was uh, which was very problematic for them. They only had six months worth of oil reserves, if I'm recalling my history correctly, uh, left. And so they realized, hey, we have to take drastic action here. We're going to attack the United States, which in the short term they did very well, but in the long term did not work out great for them. But those are the kinds of situations which you know we don't see coming right now because you can't see the the, the particulars but which are completely probable when you have uh, two bullies in a schoolyard trying to figure out who's going to be the biggest bully. And I, uh, I certainly don't like using that, that uh, analogy in my own country because I don't want us to be a bully, but it's, it's really just an analogy of strength on strength. When you have two powers and all of a sudden those two powers by uh, whatever political environment at the time decide they can't coexist, that's when it gets problematic, and that's, Thomas, what I'm really scared of. Yeah, I definitely feel like we are better off being friends with China uh, than being their enemy. And them improving our quality of life by allowing poor people in the United States to buy stuff cheaply has been really good for us. Like, I know that gets portrayed as this terrible thing, but 
ultimately people prefer to shop and buy things cheaper so they can buy more things, which allows them to stimulate the American economy more. And that's been because of China. <laughs> They've been subsidizing our economy. And you know what? I'm okay with that. And I, I know that uh, our president is very threatened by China subsidizing our economy. And I don't think that's, from my perspective, that's not the problem. The problem, if there is any problem, is the fact that we are spending more money than we are bringing in every year, which means we have to get debt to subsidize it. And China buys a lot of our debt. They're not the only ones who buy debt. Americans buy a huge chunk of American debt. So um, America is in debt to the individual citizens, kind of like how people bought war bonds back in the day. People buy government bonds today. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're born or on your first birthday, you're, you know, it's traditional for your grandparents to give you a, a bond, a U.S. Treasury note that's 30 years maturity and it will come of age when you're come of age or whatever. Um, so it's not all to China, but that is not China's problem. The fact that they're buying our debt is not our pro is not their problem. The problem is that our debt is for sale, which is our problem. We are spending more than we're bringing in. We're not living on a budget, and that is something that we have the power to fix. And we can fix that on our own. Uh, individuals can fix that on our own. You can adjust your lifestyle to fit your budget. Something I've learned a lot about in the last six months and something that I think the country needs to learn about. Uh, but yeah, I, I try to get afraid of China and the worst that happens is that they get their own territory back. So Taiwan used to belong to them. If they get it back, it will be sad for the Taiwanese, but not super sad because Taiwan has not exactly been this like bastion of peace and justice for their own citizens. Uh, those, all those aristocrats that fled to Taiwan kind of took over the country and it wasn't great for the locals. <laughs> so, um, you know, they've had one terrible leader and then they get a different terrible leader. It's kind of like being a medieval peasant. You know, the Lord gets killed and there's a new Lord and the old guy was oppressing you and the new guy oppresses you and you don't really care. Uh, and so, well, I want Taiwan to stay free and independent. Them getting conquered by China, I don't see as this terrible tragedy. Uh, when Hong Kong got handed back over, remember, people were terrified. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's the end. You know, the people in Hong Kong will be shot in the streets and none of that has happened. They don't have as much freedom as they had before, but they still have a lot of freedom. And um, and I think that that's what would happen with Taiwan. So I'm not I'm not too concerned about it. Um, I, I, they have the ability to hurt us economically far more. You know, if they just decided to sell all of our bonds all at the same time, it would create a collapse of our economy, but it would also create a collapse of the global economy. That's the thing is that we're also integrated. There's no way to hurt the United States without also hurting every other country. And that is, but still bad for China. So I, I feel like we own the bank in this case because we've given them so much or we, since we've acquired so much debt and it, it's a kind of an interesting place to be. Uh, it's in a sense, it's safety in our lack of safety. Well, Thomas, that uh, has been an interesting little discussion on uh, China. Uh, we're at about 35 minutes, so I think it's time to wrap it up. We want to know what you think. So drop us a line, shoot us an email, like us on our webpage. Heck, make a comment if you care to. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. 
This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt's CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com. 